Dr. Sue Stanfield from the History Department at the University of Texas at El Paso. Due to COVID-19, we are recording remotely rather than in a studio. However, this remote coverage has allowed us to reach out to experts in a wider array of areas. Since we've all become more aware of epidemics, pandemics, and vaccines, I thought it'd be interesting to see how people long ago dealt with similar problems. So I'm excited by the opportunity to discuss this with Dr. Angela Kieser from Allegheny College in Pennsylvania. Welcome, Angela. Hi, it's great to be here and to talk to you. So I guess to start out, um, I don't know a lot about medicine in um, the 18th century. And so I'm I'm wondering, during the 1700s, um, for the, the British colonists, what kind of health risk did they face? Yeah. So there um, we have records of both physical and mental health risks. Um, So physically, um, there uh, could be accidents such as drowning. Very few colonists, even those colonists who were mariners, knew how to swim at this time. So, yeah, which is interesting. There's, um, there's a great book written by Kathleen Brown, um, about hygiene, uh, and it talks about water and actually ideas about water and, uh, swimming was seen to be very savage, um, very, um, uncivilized. And so believe it or not, not that many people knew how to swim. So there would be deaths from drownings. Um, but as far as healthcare, care, uh, you would have uh, basically accidents. Uh, you know, if you were living in a seaport town, um, falls from ships that you were repairing, um, broken legs, broken arms, uh, there would be sickness from um, what we would consider to be, um, you know, flu-like um, maladies um, that people would treat in various ways. Um, of course, there would be epidemics, maybe every 20 to 25 years in places like Boston. Um, at times, there would be malnutrition, especially in the Chesapeake, um, with the labor conditions there, especially with um, the growing of tobacco and other cash crops. Um, and so you have a plethora of issues that could befall anyone at any time. Um, there has also been research done on um, mental illness at this time and um, ideas about um, people who um, maybe dealt with various forms of what we would consider today mental illness, um, who would be treated in, in various ways. I wasn't planning to go there, but how, how did they treat mental illness in, yeah. in 1720 well, or something? Yeah, well, it's interesting. Um, I actually talk about this with my students, um, but there were two stages, really, um, between the 1600s and the 1700s that reflected attitudes toward mental illness. And in the mid to late 1600s, mental illness was really um, focused on in a religious sense. Um, so it was thought that 
um, if you were acting oddly um, or, you know, and for society at this time, let's even be more specific. Um, I can give you an example of a man um, who went yelling through the streets of Cambridge um, in the 1670s, 1680s, and no one knew what to do with him. And they jailed him and he yelled day and night in the jail. Um, and so um, at that time, it was thought that it was no fault of the person who was acting in these odd ways um, that these types of illnesses um, could affect anyone at any time. And believe it or not, no personal blame was put on that person, okay, that it would come and go. Um, and it was really out of the control of humans. Okay. Um, but then, um, beginning in the 18th century, um, you see more secular understandings of mental illness and these secular understandings, um, did focus on potential personal fault of the person who was suffering. And it was thought that people who acted in very odd and strange ways, we're actually reverting to animalistic states. And because of this, they these individuals should be chained. Um, they should be put in small rooms, um, in homes. And this is before right, the advent of asylums in the 19th century. And so when you read about, and I have records of this in my own research, of parents sometimes who chained their children to walls, um, who were seen to be mentally ill, um, and at times would deprive them of food. It wasn't as if, you know, oh no, they're being abused and these parent parents obviously don't love their children. Instead, it was thought, no, these individuals have reverted to animalistic states. And so they don't feel the cold as humans do, just like you would leave an animal outside or chained, you know, or they didn't have the same requirements for diet. Um, and then this shifted actually um, in the very late 1700s, early 1800s, um, with people like Benjamin Rush, who was a very famous doctor um, in Philadelphia, um, who believed, wow, the medical profession and doctors can really intervene um, and do something about mental illness. And he was a proponent of drastic interventions, such as um, bleeding the head, um, because he thought that mental illness was really derived from corpuscles and the flow of blood. Um, and I wish I could show you an image of this, but he created, for instance, the gyrator chair, which was a chair <laughs> that was hooked up to uh, a handle. Um, and so people who were thought to be um, suffer from melancholy, who were lifeless, would be strapped into this chair. Um, and the operator of the chair, the medical practitioner, would actually start turning the chair as fast as they could go to try to, you know, activate the blood in the person. You know, um, if you were somebody who was manic, who had too much energy, um, then Benjamin Rush had this contraption um, where you would be confined in a chair, but instead of moving, you were to be completely still. There was a mask put over your eyes 
so you couldn't see anything. Um, There would even be a receptacle for you if you had to use the bathroom during this time that could last for hours and hours. Um, So mental illness actually was viewed in very different ways throughout this time period. So, yeah. Wow. I just, (laughs) for some reason, I always thought we didn't start dealing with mental illness until like Dorothea Dix and asylums and all of that in the 19th century. So that's, that's fascinating that they were, you know, processing, if, if not providing great care, you know, thinking about it and, and looking at it. Well, I'm kind of curious when we look at um, the 1700s, what were the real life expectancies? You know, I know that we always say, Oh, you know, people only live to be 40, but a lot of that's because of infant mortality. Um, and the founders, they, you know, except for Hamilton, they all, you know, lived to be ripe old ages. And so what, what was it like? I mean, were, do you have a good chance for a decent length of life living? Well, it really depended on where you were, um, and what area of the, um, colonies of the British colonies you were living in. Um, it's really fascinating Um, to know that the life expectancies of individuals that lived in New England could um, be 80 years. Um, Some people lived slightly longer than that, Um, which which to me when I first um, learned about that was very surprising because I thought, oh, colonial America, the conditions are awful. People probably all died, as you said, in their 40s. Um, But in general... And I'm talking about the the very high end of, you know, how long people could live. Um, But in general, if you were living in New England where the health conditions were vastly better than, let's say, the Chesapeake um, or the southern colonies, um, people typically lived into their 60s and their 70s. Um, In the Chesapeake and um, in the 1700s, Um, some people in this varied based on who you were, right? If you were a laborer, if you were an enslaved person, um, if you were, you know, indentured, but life expectancy, um, was at least 10, if not 20 years less than the life expectancies of those in New England. Yeah. And so it really depended on where you lived, um, and health conditions, historians believe in the Chesapeake or in the more southern colonies um, um, were much um, more poor than they were in New England. And this has to do with anything from climate, okay, um, to, um, you know, where people lived in the Chesapeake, if you live near uh, swampy conditions where there are a lot of mosquitoes. You have malaria and other mosquito-borne diseases. Um, but yeah, this starts to change in the Chesapeake. Um, as you go through the 18th century, uh, you see the lifespan um, increasing. Uh, but for the most part, New England was really the place where people lived the longest as a, as a okay. generality. So... You know, I'm not suffering from an accident, but instead I have some sort of viral infection, although I don't know if I would have known that's what it was at the time. Mm-hmm. What What's available for me for treatment? I mean, did were there actual medicines that I would get from a doctor or was everything herbal or 
Right. You know, how, how would I get help? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, because I think part of the interesting um, thing, at least for me, in learning about this era in healthcare is imagining, right? What would happen um, if you suddenly had a sore throat and couldn't get out of bed? Um, in general, and then uh, I'll talk about in general, um, the ideas that people use to actually determine what should be given to somebody um, and then actually what was given <laughs> to people. Um, but in general, um, medical practitioners at this time, and I am not only talking about doctors, I'm talking about midwives, I'm talking about lay people who also um, gave what we would consider um, medical substances or treatments to ailing people. In general, medical practitioners looked to Europe and what was being done in Europe. And so um, many laymen and um, doctors, trained doctors, would have text published in England, um, in France, um, and look at different chemical substances, um, medicines that would be given to help alleviate conditions. Uh, there were herbal remedies that were given. And um, what's interesting at the time is that even though these herbs, some of them were known in England, some of them were not, but um, much of the credit for knowing the healing properties of herbs was given to European thinkers. Um, even though we as historians know that indigenous people um, and their knowledge of herbs was conveyed to British settlers um, in the 17th century. So yeah, so the treatments you would get um, could be um, a concoction developed by an apothecary who basically was the pharmacist of colonial America, um, combining different substances. And these could be metallic substances like mercury. <laughs> um, it could be um, less invasive substances um, that were combined together. Um, and usually these substances were meant to purge the body of what ailed it, right? And we can talk about humoral theory, maybe. This is all connected to that. But the medicines you were given were meant to make you throw up, to have massive diarrhea, okay? To have this huge reaction from the body because it was thought, oh, this is great. You're getting the sickness out, you know? Um, there were also things that were used like poultices, which would be um, uh, basically cloths that would be dipped into soothing maybe aloe substances, aloe-based substances, or um, other substances that were meant to um, heal wounds, or that, um, for instance, in instances of scarlet fever, where people had very sore throats or rashes to be placed on the skin, um, to be a soothing agent. Um, but yeah, so it was, um, people did ingest medicines. Um, there were paste 
um, liquids that were put on the skin. Um, and there were also herbs that were used to do this. Um, but for the most part, it was thought um, at this time and into the early 19th century that the more of a reaction your body had to whatever was put in it meant success. And if something was put in your body and nothing happened and you just fell asleep, oh, no, no, no. Okay. <laughs> that, that wasn't a sign of a good medicine. Yeah. Yeah, that seems to suggest people would have a lot of anxiety about seeing a doctor if you know what's coming. Um, yeah, yeah. So, um, I guess, I mean, I think from a 21st century standpoint, you know, things are, are pretty primitive when it comes to, to medicine at this time. So was there a big difference between like, if I lived in Boston, um, and my healthcare in the early 1700s versus I live in a, a village somewhere in New Hampshire? Right. Um, so in, in, in that sense, in the sense of who you could go to available people, it would um, be different based on the number of doctors and people called themselves doctors. And it did not mean that if you were a doctor, you had medical training right from a college or a university. Um, being a doctor at this time simply meant that you were saying, I have experience in the medical arts. Maybe you were apprenticed to someone um, for some years. Um, there were also many people who called themselves doctor who had no experience at all and went from <laughs> locality to locality to locality. Um, but for the most part, if you were living in Boston, um, you would have more access to male doctors than you would in a small town. Um, but however, even if you were living in Boston, um, in general, you would only have access to doctors if you had significant resources. I mean, for the most part, people living in places like Boston, and let me be even more specific, when we talk about a city or a town, right, what did that even mean? And Boston was one of the biggest cities. It was thought of as a city at this time in the 18th century. And in the 1730s, maybe we're talking 5,000 people. Okay, so that's the big city. Um, but in general, whether you were in a village or in a city, usually midwives were the medical practitioners in the 18th century, for the most part, before the Revolutionary War. Um, that you would go to. Yeah. Um, increasingly, doctors became more prevalent after the Revolutionary War in the 1780s, 1790s. Yeah. Um, now, what's true of the paucity of doctors in Boston was even more true in places in Virginia, right? Or in, in areas of the Chesapeake in Maryland. Um, so, yeah. So, as far as differences, the main differences would be in time of epidemic, you know, because epidemics um, would affect cities, towns um, much more than in uh, more spread out rural areas. But as far as where you would go to for health care, um, generally midwives in both areas. 
So midwives do a whole lot more than delivering babies. They give medical help too. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So um, was there, I mean, let's say I'm poor. Mm -hmm. Would I still get health care? Like does my colony help me out? Does the village I live in, do I just depend on my church or my neighbors? But but what happens if I get sick and I don't have money? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. And it's also what a lot of my research is about, asking that question. Um, what if you don't have money for a doctor? What if you don't have anything? Do you lay on the street and die a horrible <laughs> death? Um, what I have found um, is that people who were needy, um, which was the word that was used at the time, Generally, if they generally they were given care um, through what I call community networks. Now, what's interesting is that um, there were networks set up, at least in Massachusetts, um, that I have found um, within communities that took care of the poor, the needy, uh, and they would use other residents' houses to take care of the needy. So if someone was needy and let's say you had a broken bone and you couldn't afford someone to come and help you with it, um, the town um, would place you in the residence of another resident um, and would bring in um, either a midwife or a doctor to help you. Um, It was thought to be the duty of town authorities. It was not seen to be sort of an individual um, sort of responsibility. Well, if you're sick, you know, it's on you. And if you don't have the money, too bad. Um, I have found at least in Massachusetts during the 18th century, this was really thought of as a responsibility of the community. Okay. Now, this did not mean that to become sick in the 18th century, boy, what an ideal time. People will just take care of me and I don't have to worry about it, right? Um, That one, the type of care you received depended on whether you were a member of the community. So if you had lived in the community for at least seven years, if you were born in the community, um, your care might be of a higher quality than if you were someone who was transient and poor and had no connections to any community. Um, So I really want to stress that um, this was not like a utopia, an 18th century utopia of healthcare. Um, But there was a different sense of responsibility and whose responsibility um, was it to care for those in need? So it's it's sort of a government duty instead of like a, like the church. I mean, right. So, yeah. Yeah. And I, and you did, you know, ask about churches before and I didn't get to that, but yeah. So it was a a communities, a localities, a town's responsibility. And this is actually rooted um, in the poor law of England from the 16th century. Um, There was a a 1580 um, poor law in England that made, um, and I'm going to say welfare instead of healthcare, the welfare of residents, um, which could include healthcare. It could include needing wood. It could include needing food. 
the responsibility of the local community leaders. Um, There was charity that was given out by local um, churches, but it was not to the extent um, as what the town leaders provided. And again, um, this is rooted in um, English history of um, England, um, who was once Catholic, right? And then we have King Henry VIII, (laughs) and then it becomes Protestant. And the Catholic Church and the church structure really took on a lot of the welfare of people within the parish. Mm -hmm. And when England became Protestant, right, we no longer have that. Um, And so that responsibility was really placed on town leaders. And that and that carries over across the Atlantic for the British colonies. Okay. Um, so now that we are dealing with a pandemic, I'm kind of curious what sort of epidemics did um, British North Americans face, you know, in the 1700s or so? So smallpox epidemics are the epidemics that are the most written about and recorded in records from this time period. There were also yellow fever epidemics um, in various areas. You have epidemics of scarlet fever, Um, but smallpox, I would say, is really, smallpox epidemics generated fear, anxiety, Um, you know, and and we can talk about why this is if you'd like, but, um, when I think about, you know, the coronavirus now and the fear that's generated, you know, how do I get it? Um, you know, is a mask enough? You know, what should I do for me as a historian? And I don't want to be too ahistorical. It really taps into the very human emotions of fear and anxiety that were experienced in the 18th century around smallpox. So did they, you know, we are supposed to shelter in place, um, although not anymore, um, <laughs> wear masks, you know, all of the things, wiping down your groceries when you get home. How did, how did cities and villages try to protect themselves from smallpox or did they not have a plan and just hope it didn't get to them. Yeah. Um, maybe all of the above, depending on (laughs) where you were. Um, but for the most part, um, even though British colonial Americans, right. Did not know about germ theory. That was after the civil war, like into the 19th century that we have this conception of germs or viruses. Um, they did know that, Um, Some of the early signs of smallpox, um, which could be like the flu um, with a sore throat, headache. Um, And they did know that pustules developed about seven to 10 days after this. Um, But um, and they and they knew that um, there were certain types of pustules that were called confluent pustules Um, and I know this isn't very pleasant to talk about, (laughs) that would run together, right, and look like a mass. Um, And those usually led to death versus pustules that were discreet um, and did not run together. Uh, And the person who displayed these 
it was thought had a better chance of surviving smallpox. Um, so they knew these physical um, sort of manifestations. And what they attempted to do, even in the early 1700s, um, and the big smallpox epidemic of 1721, we see this, is try to quarantine people. So for instance, and I'll use Boston as an example, um, there was a great fear in Boston of people coming in on ships because it's a seaport and bringing smallpox or being infected. And so um, in the 1721 epidemic, um, the city of Boston passed quarantine measures. Um, and basically, when 50 people in the town or city of Boston um, had smallpox, um, the authorities would actually place um, red flags on their doors. Um, so people, and they were supposed to stay there and quarantine. And quarantine was the word that was used, you know, um, themselves. Um, there were some people in Boston who had a lot of money, a lot of resources, who as soon as these, you know, red flags were put up or the marks on the doors were put up, um, tried to escape Boston and ran away to Cambridge or other surrounding areas um, to try to get out of the grasp of smallpox. Um, and many of these people actually ended up bringing the smallpox with them to the areas that they fled to. Um, mm. But for the most part, um, quarantining um, was something that was done. Um, and w beginning with Cotton Mather in 1721, um, you see the start of the use of inoculation as well that's used to try to um, sort of limit the effects of smallpox and limit deaths. So what was a, um, an early inoculation? Was it just exposure to someone with it or was it an injection or? So, um, and, and this is fascinating. There are uh, manuals dedicated to the actual process of inoculation that are very detailed. Um, but overall, um, the idea of inoculation that historians believe actually originated in Africa um, or Turkey um, was the idea that if you find someone, right, who is um, having pustules, is suffering actively from smallpox, if you take the pus or um, the fluid from a pustule, okay, from this person suffering, and you place it inside a healthy person, and I'll talk about how you place it inside a healthy person, um, that person will develop smallpox, but in a much more milder form. And so what would happen would be that um, the fluid inside um, smallpox pustules would be collected. And uh, for someone who wanted to be inoculated, um, the medical practitioner would basically um, cut a place within the inner arm. Okay. Um, and then actually in the inner leg, there were two places that were generally thought of to be good places to do this. And so within each cut, a few drops 
of the material from pustules would be placed. And these areas would be bound up. And then the person um, was supposed to um, confine themselves to their homes. Some of them did not, however. (laughs) Um, And they would then wait for the um, smallpox to occur, right? And there were some people that died from inoculation. Um, And there were experiments done um, with inoculation um, by a doctor named Boylston um, to try to figure out, okay, you know, is inoculation helpful? Um, and the community was really divided about that in 1721. And there were many different opinions, but, but yes, so inoculation was actually exposing yourself to the disease through the material and pustules and intentionally saying, you know, I'm going to get smallpox, but hopefully it's going to be milder than if I get it in the natural way. Okay. So when did a vaccine appear? Like some more? Yeah. So um, Jenner, Edward Jenner in 1798 um, is really known as the person that really pioneered vaccinations. Um, And it's interesting when you look at inoculation and vaccination, um, you know, what's the difference between the two? You know, what do, what do each of these mean? Um, inoculation, as I described, is taking like active substances, um, you know, that have the disease um, and placing them inside of a person, right? And that person will develop the disease and hopefully, you know, not to the same extent as they would naturally. Vaccination um, and Jenner used weakened um, uh, cowpox material, right? So he used material not from actual smallpox victims, but either deadened or extremely weakened material um, from a related um, sort of disease to, to um, you know, insert into people basically. Um, and so vaccinations are meant to really stimulate the body and stimulate antibodies in the body to fight off disease, right? Um, Whereas inoculation is basically exposing you to the active disease and you're going to get the disease, but hopefully it's it's not going to be as bad. But vaccinations began in 1798. But that's fascinating to me that they were already thinking about it and maybe in a more primitive way, but but dealing with this also through scientific thought with the inoculations a good 70 years before. So Yeah, and, and if you think about it, and I try to um, you know, think, oh, how would I feel? Would I want to get inoculated <laughs> in 1721? You know, somebody else's pus is inserted inside of me. I mean, that's it, it it's really interesting, just the faith and the sort of, you know, willingness to um, listen to voices of, for instance, Onesimus, who was um, an enslaved man from the West Coast of Africa that lived in Cotton Mather's household. And Cotton Mather was a very famous divine. He was a famous Puritan preacher, but also physician. And 
and I also think it's it's um, a big part of it is just the anxiety and the fear. We have no control over smallpox. It's taking away lives. Cotton Mather's first wife was killed by smallpox. Some of his children were killed. And so it was almost as though, you know, we need to find something. And Onesimus told of how in Africa, um, inoculation was used. And Cotton Mather took that and ran with it. Now, he didn't give Onesimus credit for this. Thankfully, historians now have done that. Um, It goes back to Native Americans and herbs and, you know, giving credit where credit's due, I think. Um, But yeah, and there were some medical professionals that thought, this is crazy. What are you talking about, right? You're giving this infectious material, you're inserting it into people's bodies. If people are going to die, it's it's God. God's going to decide whether they get smallpox or not. Humans shouldn't intervene. Um, and so there were very violent um, confrontations about this, including um bombs, if you will, or Molotov cocktails (laughs) that were thrown through Cotton Mather's window um, of his home because he really promoted inoculation. Yeah. And I, and I know I'm probably talking here a lot, but I, um, and I also, I think it would be remiss not to add that the history of inoculation was not just a history of white men like Cotton Mather like William Boylston, okay, who are given credit for having, you know, the courage to um, experiment with inoculation. The people who were inoculated and who were experiments were done upon were the enslaved, were people who were needy, who were poor. Um, In the very first Um, I'm going to call it human experimentation that was done with inoculation. 286 people were gathered in Boston, most of them servants, most of them enslaved, who were forcibly inoculated. So I just want to add that, that this is not the tale of great men with great ideas and everything, you know, which is wrapped in a bow, that there's another history as well. Yeah, that's always great to to know and to recognize and to see where we can kind of go in and, uh, you know, recover histories that have been forgotten. Um, so I guess to, to wrap things up, one of the things, um, I'm always, I'm trying to accomplish with the, with the podcast is to, you know, kind of learn different things than you cover in the classroom, but also to be able to think about them in a different way. And so I've asked everyone I've interviewed, um, if they can think of, you know, maybe the people they're talking about, if they had an Instagram account in 1700, right? And what kind of hashtags might they use to describe themselves? And so I don't know if you want to provide one for a sick person or a doctor or someone getting inoculated, but what might, um, what might the colonial Instagram account use oh, as a hashtag? Goodness. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, you know, somebody I would say, you know, as, as we were just talking about 1721 and people getting inoculated and um, the fear and anxiety around smallpox, um, I would imagine, you know, you know, a hashtag, you know, 
hashtag, please let this work. Please let me live, you know, um, just really demonstrating, you know, the, the tenuous nature of all of this. Um, and I also think what's really striking about this um, is that while there are many, many, many differences, okay, um, between the 18th century and the 21st century, um, the human emotions of anxiety and fear, um, you know, the disparate impacts on people of color or the poor, um, are still, you know, they were salient, very salient in the 18th century. Um, and I know there have been many stories about these issues even now. Um, and so, you know, I, you know, I also think, you know, hashtag, um, same problems, different era. Um, and that's not to minimize the very real historical differences, Um, But I also think that as a historian, looking back and really looking at patterns um, that appear time and time again is also very important. Thank you so much for talking with me today. Um, As I said, with the the place we are with the COVID virus, I think there's this interest in the past and in medicine that might not have been around two years ago. And so um, it's really great to have a chance to talk to an expert. I know you've done so much research on this topic. So when I, when I wanted to do a podcast, you're the first person I thought of that I'd love to find out um, more about healthcare and the colonial era. So thank you so much. And, thank you. Uh, thank you. Yeah. And I, you completely surprised me with the discussion of mental health. And that is another fantastic thing to, to think about and um, how communities grappled with that um, in the early colonial era. So I appreciate it. And uh, thank you. Stay healthy and happy. Yeah, thank you so much. This has been really, really wonderful.